This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, the U.S. Census Bureau caused a big stir when it predicted that Anglo-whites would become a minority of the U.S. population by either the year 2042 or 2045. But what impact will the huge Latino immigrant influx have on racial attitudes deep into the 21st century? We'll explore that question. And the South American nation of Colombia is gripped by protests as the U.S.-backed government attempts to impose a harsh austerity regime. We'll hear from a Black Colombian activist. But first, the COVID-19 pandemic has worked vast changes in U.S. life, but some things remain the same, such as the fact that women still do most of the housework and immigrants assume much of the burden of cleaning up the country. We spoke with Nicole Froyo, a Colombian-Brazilian journalist and researcher who authored an article titled The Pandemic Housework Dilemma Whitewashed. I had been noticing this framing where it just seemed like women of color who are the majority of people who do paid housework in terms of cleaners and care work and all that stuff, those workers were really not showing up in the way that we're talking about housework right now. So it becomes kind of an individualized problem of, oh my God, my husband doesn't do the housework, I'm so overworked. And then I was thinking like, cleaners, when they come into a job, they go, they clean, and then they come back home and they don't have a cleaner. So we're creating a situation where we're talking about housework in a really whitewashed way and kind of focusing a lot on the pitfalls of the working woman in terms of middle-class women rather than working-class women who are cleaners and do care work that is salaried. And part of that problem is that housework isn't actually valued as work because it's not seen as productive work, is seen as maintenance work. And so I saw this as an issue, and a lot of it came from seeing these discourses of, you know, as you said, in corporate media of, of you know, white middle-class women being like, I'm so overworked, I'm so overworked. And I just thought, you know, if you are overworked, imagine people who are cleaners and, and do care work, and they are at the front lines every day. So that's why I decided to write it. You know, back in the day, and that was before I was even a youngster, there were scenes in television and had long been scenes in the movies of black women doing the domestic work. Black maids had a fairly high profile. Then we get the 60s, and there are demands made by these women and arguments made for their exploitation. And so we see the maids come off of television and out of the movies, but they didn't come out of the house. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting shift, right? Because I think one of the things that I mentioned in my article and that I found quite fascinating, and and this all came from reading the book Revolution at Point Zero by Silvia Federici, like right at that moment. 
and she recounts uh, exactly what you just said, a movement of black women who were being paid for, very badly, of course, for being cleaners. And they just got to a point where they were like, we create an environment in capitalism where workers are able to work in clean, maintained spaces. Why aren't we being valued? And I think that I mentioned the welfare mothers who they said, we should just be paid for cleaning our own houses and maintaining our own homes and creating workers. So that was really important to me to kind of really tie that down to those first kind of movements around housework and and note how all these years later, when we talk about housework, we don't really talk about that aspect of it. You know, one measurement of what an adequate wage is, and this is from the management or the owner's standpoint, is a wage that is sufficient to keep the worker and his family at least on a subsistence level so the work can continue to be done. But many managements now even ignore the stipulation that there be enough wages uh, to keep the family going. And they have apparently switched then to migrant workers who are undocumented in this country, who don't bring their children here, but send money back in order to lower the burden on the hire of these household workers. Yeah, there's a book that talks about that in the UK context, and it's called The Care Work Crisis. And they describe exactly that issue of women entering the workforce and and its idea that now the people that have to pick up after them are very insecure, precarious workers, and how that is resulting in a care crisis. And this has become so clear during the pandemic we haven't really, up to this point, understood, in my view, two things. That, first of all, care work can never really be abolished. We can never not do care work. That is something, care work and housework are things that have to be done. And then the second thing that I think that we haven't actually reckoned with is that care work, especially when we're talking about precarious workers and migrant workers, it's an incredibly isolating experience, and it can be dangerous. You know, like it, there's a lot of, of sexual violence that takes place, harassment, verbal abuse, and all of that privileges a certain class of woman who now perhaps gets to say, I'm independent, I work, I am a girl boss, and all that stuff. Meanwhile, what you're doing is you're benefiting from the oppression of other women. So, so that's kind of at the heart of what I wanted to say in that article, I think. Yes, and you have said it. The burden has been shifted in homework to black and brown women so that white women and other women of affluent means could enjoy fuller lives and more fully enjoy their privileges. Yeah, exactly. And I think that one thing that I always try to remind myself about is how delegating that doesn't solve the problem of the gendered aspect of housework. It just delegates it to the poorest and more vulnerable populations of women. So what's really happening is I think that there's a huge class component here 
that a lot of white affluent women don't want to talk about. They want to talk about how they're overworked, how they need help. And I don't dispute that sometimes you do need help because at that point we can't really deny that people do need help because, you know, there are disabled people and people who aren't able-bodied and all that stuff. But what would happen if we thought of care work as not the lowest type of job but really, really, truly valued it as a high-paying job that literally keeps society going? Whenever I think about that, I'm just like, it would just flip the script. It would flip the class structure. It would flip the race structure. But that, of course, Um, uh, would demand a state intervention because these private employers, they will never accomplish that. So there has to be the acceptance of the state for a responsibility for all families and responsibility for the welfare of all workers and devising a system in which adequate and living wages are paid to everybody, those who take care of the households and those who are in the workforce. Absolutely. I think that you touch upon something really important when we are talking about uh, especially the Wages for Housework movement. And that was such an important movement for my own political education because Wages for Housework was even against socialist feminist ideas that introducing women to the work would solve a lot of gendered issues. They were actually against that. And I think that's really interesting now because there's a crisis of, you know, people don't have enough money to live. They have too much work. And one thing that I always think about is when we're talking about being paid for housework in terms of being given welfare or the state paying us for housework as women or as just houseworkers, We're not talking about being paid because we want to be paid. We are being paid because we are owed a debt for providing work for continuing society. And I think that is really something that I think Federica said that that in in an interview, and I was like, yes, we are owed this money. Like, we're not begging the state for welfare. We are demanding what is rightfully ours when we make the demand for wages for housework. And I think that that would help a lot of the things that you're saying, you know, like being given a living wage, being able to give workers the conditions that they deserve. You know, everyone needs to live with dignity. And I think that thinking through a lens of wages for housework is important because that is so much of what, of the unpaid work that happens. What in fact happens is that the work of black and brown women in households was devalued so that white women could degenderize many of these professions and make a better living thereby. Yes, exactly. It's quite a stunning flipping of the script since the 60s and the 70s, where we have to talk about feminisms. So there's socialist feminism, there's materialist feminism, there's a lot of different feminisms that we can talk about. But now the prevalent feminism that is leading the conversations about housework is white liberal feminism, or some people would even call it power feminism, where the empowering of a certain kind of woman, as you said, white, wealthy, affluent, is seen as the ultimate goal, and then all the other women who aren't like that are left to pick up. Now, we should not leave, and you haven't, but we must always keep our eye 
on those exploited, almost entirely women, who take care of old and sick people, and yet themselves make often far less effectively than the minimum wage. Yeah, that is really, really important. And I think that that kind of loops back to what I was saying about how care work is always going to be necessary. The problem is that there are certain kinds of people who are relegated into care work, right? As you said, black and brown women are usually typecast or forced to because of maybe their lower income and that's just the only thing that they can get their hands into like, or, or get the profession into. And so what happens is that care work is so important, but because it's done by a certain type of person, it is completely devalued and it is not actually paid what they're worth. And I think it's just, it just really goes to show how alienating and oppressive capitalism can be when we see that one of the most important jobs, which is caring for each other, it is, it's care is not, it shouldn't be alienated, it shouldn't be devalued, and it shouldn't be equal to exploitation. Care should be something that we all have a right to, but the way that it works is the only people who are relegated to doing care work are being paid so little, being exploited so much, that the issue of care becomes a crisis. I think that one of the things that we talked about a lot here is the complicity of white women, right? And I think maybe what's also missing here is the complicity of white men as well in this equation. I think it's really important to say, obviously, I think that it's not okay for for white women to be doing this and saying that they're girl boss and using all of this like liberal power feminism discourses to simply oppress other women. But I think that we do need to talk about the fact that this also comes from the utter and complete refusal from men to even see housework and care work as valuable and as things that they must also play a part into. And then another point that I want to make is that materialist feminism or anarchist feminism, which are kind of the strands of feminism that I work with or that I think about, we want to abolish the idea of individualism. And I think that's very much like where a lot of the root of this problem comes from, right? It's been totally individualized, whereas care work and housework could be collective. We could divide all these tasks and we could live in a collective world where housework isn't completely individualized into wage labor and then also unpaid labor. So what I personally am really talking about is the abolition of, of capitalism as it is and of how we think of work. We may already and, have made some strides in that arena or close to that goal with the payments that are finally coming down for children. Mm-hmm. Children are housework, and taking care of children is involves a lot of standard housework. And so that's getting closer, at least in concept, uh, to what you're looking towards. That is, people are taking one aspect of homework as a valuable and paid thing into consideration. Yeah, that sounds like exactly what I'm speaking of. And 
I just want to reiterate that my perspective is not one of, you know, everyone deserves a seat at the table. It's more of a, we need to destroy the table as it is and think of a new concept. (laughs) And I mean, that sounds like exactly what I'm talking about or kind of like walking towards that. You're speaking towards a collectivist model of human organization, which is anathema to folks who want to get above the crowd through money and make folks work for him or her at will and whim. Yes, exactly. I am always pro a more collective approach. And I wonder sometimes if that is maybe like the Brazilian in me, the Latin American in me, because I do feel like we have a more more of a collective society back in Latin America. And so I would like to see those strands of thought really expanded into, into the global north as well. That was journalist and researcher Nicole Froyo. Census Bureau data seem to show that white majorities will become a thing of the past in the United States before the midpoint of the 21st century, largely because of continued immigration. However, what happens to that calculation if many of those immigrants from Latin America insist on claiming to be white? Could that prolong the existence of white majorities in this country? We pose that question to Professor Shanti Rosado of the Africana Studies and Latino and Caribbean Studies Department at Rutgers University. Professor Rosado's current book project is titled Latinxes and the Emotional Politics of Race and Blackness in the U.S. First of all, I think that it's very important to think about the types of Latinos that end up in the U.S. versus those who do not end up in the U.S. So I think that helps us understand where this sort of majority-minority situation is going to end up. So, for example, a lot of folks will look at, say, Cubans, and they know the history of the Cuban Revolution, and they know that lots of Cubans that came to the U.S. were leaving because of the Castro administration, and were leaving usually with a lot of resources and with help once they arrived to the U.S. Those ended up being a lot of white Cubans. They were of higher socioeconomic status in Cuba, and then they received assistance once they were in the U.S. And this has led a lot of people to kind of think that Cubans are white as a whole, which is completely not the truth. There are a lot of Black people in Cuba. I think that it's important to understand that the Latinos that are here in the U.S. differ from the Latinos who never leave their country of origin. So that's the first thing. The second thing to understand is our proximity to Mexico, for example, leads there to be the case that over 70% of Latinos are Mexican in the U.S. So that's already kind of showing that we're going to have this sort of situation where at least now there's an increasing number of Central Americans coming, but Mexicans still have the majority in terms of Latinos in the U.S. And Mexicans are of different races as well. So I think it's important to know that even though they're racialized as this kind of amorphous brown group, that there is racial diversity in Mexico and there is racial diversity among Mexicans in the U.S. So those things are imperative to to understand what this 2042 year is going to look like. 
And I think it's important also to recognize that given that there are a lot of white Latinos in Latin America and in the U.S. for a variety of reasons, that you can't just assume that 2042 is going to be this kind of very momentous time where where whiteness loses some of its status and power in the U.S. And that's because a lot of Latinos either are white themselves, even though they are perhaps racialized differently in the U.S., they would be white in their countries of origin and therefore carry some of that privilege. But also that even amongst Latinos who are not white, there is still oftentimes kind of an endorsement of white supremacy or an internalized racism that leads people to think that, as one person told me, that white is right, that you need to act white, you need to be white-ish in you know, your aspirations in order to succeed in this country. So I think it's really important to not put too much hope on that date, uh, given that there's a lot of work to be done to undo anti-Blackness and white supremacy among Latinos. Yes, one would expect um, yeah. that people who were considered white in their home countries will consider themselves mm-hmm. white here. But one suspects that some Latinos come here and see an opportunity to change their racial status. And we do know that mm-hmm. Cuba, for example, is said, there are no hard figures, but some say that Cuba lost half its white population to places like Miami mm-hmm. after the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Cubans, yeah. white Cubans, tend to see the revolution in racial terms and may have become mm-hmm. harder in those racial attitudes, having been chased out, they feel, by blackness mm-hmm. and among other things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's, it's very important to know the particular dynamics of each country because those dynamics will influence how people both see their own race and how they racialize others. Another example would be in Puerto Rico, which is where I'm from. There is the myth of of three races. They call it the myth of three races. But the idea is that Puerto Ricans aren't racially differentiated. Instead, we're all Puerto Rican and we're all a mixture of African, indigenous, and European. But the truth is that there is, you know, there are a lot of Black people in Puerto Rico and there are a lot of you know, there's racism in Puerto Rico, there's, there are racial inequalities in healthcare and education and income, all of these things. And so when you actually see things on the ground, this myth of three races is really just perpetuating a colorblind understanding of race. So then when you see Puerto Ricans in the U.S., usually what tends to happen is they see themselves as Puerto Rican first, because that's how they have learned to racialize themselves. But over generations, they tend to change the racial designation as perhaps not black, perhaps not white, somewhere in between. But they also understand that their position in the U.S. is contingent on how white people racialize them. And usually white people racialize them as being at least somewhat black. And therefore, a lot of Puerto Ricans have come to either identify as black or identify as Afro-descendant or some other variety of of things, kind of with the understanding that things are different here than they are in Puerto Rico. There is that history of Puerto Ricans in New York, which was the main port of entry for a long time, where hospitals Uh would designate B 
babies with Hispanic last names automatically as white. And there is no record of Puerto Ricans complaining about uh, that practice, uh, which mm -hmm. continued into the 60s. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, there's still data today that finds, you know, we still don't know from the 2020 census what the numbers are, but from the 2010 census, we know that over 70, maybe 80% of Puerto Ricans identify as white on the island, whereas in the U.S., only about 40% identify as white. And so you can tell that there is like a major change in terms of racial consciousness when Puerto Ricans come to the U.S., which doesn't mean, you know, 40% is still pretty high, I would say, but, but it still shows that like there is a shift in how people think of themselves, but that doesn't mean that that shift equals identification with blackness. So yeah, about 3% of Latinos identify as black in the U.S. as of the 2010 census. That figure for Puerto Ricans in particular, I believe, is around 9 or 10 percent, and among Dominicans, a little bit higher, but not by much. So, I mean, if you know, you know, if you've been to these places, you can tell, like, oh, yeah, there is, you know, there is a substantive, a substantive amount of the population that is either Afro-descendant or, you know, they either look like they could be construed as mixed in a U.S. sense or they would be perceived as Black um, in the U.S. Yes, Black folks uh -huh. in the U.S. are quick to perceive people as Black because our experience <laughs> has been that all those who could be sold, which came from many, many, many shades of Black, are Black mm -hmm. because of that saleable mm -hmm. status that prevailed in slavery and then became a mm -hmm. discriminatable status. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the thing to note as well is that that situation of, for example, of mothers passing on their enslaved status to their children, regardless of who the father was, that that was also present in Puerto Rico and in places in Latin America. The big difference comes when it has to do with legal segregation. And that's where the big difference kind of starts to show up. So, for example, in the U.S., after the Civil War, you have the, the, you know, and after Reconstruction, you have these Jim Crow laws being put in place, right? So people are being separated, and it is legally sanctioned to separate people by race. In places in Latin America, we didn't have Jim Crow laws, but what happened instead is there was this informal separation of races that was more cultural and more interpersonal than it was legal. So you don't have kind of the legal apparatus coming in saying, you know, you cannot, you know, be with X person, you cannot be with Y person. But instead, you have these informal things where like, you know, black Puerto Ricans couldn't go to certain clubs, or, you know, black Cubans were excluded from, from different social groups, and or were, you know, discriminated, but it wasn't legalized. And so you did have more of a mixing of groups in Latin America, but that doesn't mean that there was, you know, this sort of like racial democracy where everybody was respected. Like, no, there was still racism. There was still, you know, there was still racial discrimination. It just wasn't encoded in the law in the same way that it was in the U.S. And so bringing this discussion to the present, the present political mm -hmm. lay of the land, we see racial attitudes changing or gelling dramatically, including in the Latino community. 
You argue, I read, that responses to police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a social movement that came into being after probably two generations of political quietude in Black America, uh, that this Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter movement moment has generated what you call high-value emotional currencies in the U.S., currencies that lead people to take sides and positions on race. And what I find is that, perhaps not surprisingly to, <laughs> to Black folks in the U.S., is that attitudes and emotions surrounding these racially charged racist moments, you know, that what I find is that it really, that among Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in particular, that their views differ based on their skin color and their features. So really, in essence, their race. Uh, and what I find is that regardless of how folks identify, so say, for example, I'm talking to a dark-skinned Dominican who doesn't identify as Black, and then another dark-skinned Dominican who does identify as Black, they both have very similar beliefs in terms of the movement and in terms of police brutality. And usually those perspectives have to do with policing the behavior of the Black people involved. But they do so with the view that whatever Black people do, whatever Black people in the U.S. do, impacts how dark-skinned Latinos are treated. So there is this sense of what I call linked fate, that they understand, regardless of their racial self-identification, they understand on some level that their skin color, their features are a target in this country. But the issue is that instead of blaming the police officers, the state, you know, the people in power, white people who are racist, instead of blaming those folks, they blame Black Americans for their behavior. And so you see an area that needs significant work, which is that Latinos tend to, particularly in the States, because they don't hold as much of a political affiliation to Blackness, that they tend to fail to see the structural issues that impact Black people's lives and lead them to be targets. And instead, they kind of focus on the behavior and they focus on whether the Black people involved are acting respectably or are acting, you know, in a proper fashion, as opposed to looking at, you know, the fact that we live in a police state where Black people are heavily policed and surveilled, and that that is what leads to these moments. You know, I've been somewhat disturbed and surprised in my travels and in discussions with immigrants here to find that so many, even Afro-Latinos, seem to feel that mm-hmm. Black Americans have a some kind of racial chip on their shoulder mm-hmm. uh, because our antenna is always up. Uh, regarding an always prevalent racism. Mm-hmm. And I hope, you know, I, I haven't conducted um, interviews since last summer, which I feel like was kind of a turning point in this country. Not a significant enough turning point, but still. And so I wonder if things have changed since I conducted my interviews, which uh, was in 2016, if things have changed due to the Donald Trump presidency, due to, you know, more blatant racism, coming to the fore in the U.S. And I wonder if those things have impacted how people feel and how they think about race. 
but you are you know completely correct that that there is this perception that black americans make everything about race or that americans in general are obsessed with race and the issue you know the issue often is that folks in latin america because for two reasons they don't hold that same political view of race that is prevalent among black americans and those two reasons are one that there is this idea that we're all everyone in latin america is just you know organized around their nationality but there aren't racial differences quote unquote there's just different skin colors but we all you know we're all ecuadorian we're all peruvian we're all mexican etc so there's that idea that nationalist i guess cohesion that folks fall into and the other thing is that in Latin America, you know, people are, Black people are kind of, they're socialized to not talk about their race. They're socialized to not make claims, make political or form political movements around the issue of racism. So even when you see political movements or social movements in Latin America that are of Black Latin Americans, for example, in Colombia, a lot of times folks feel like they have to organize around this idea that like they're culturally different and they're ethnically different, but not necessarily that they are racially oppressed. And that is because it doesn't have as much of an impact on the state because people deny racism so strongly. So in the U.S., it's almost like people try to deny racism. Obviously, we see that every day. But there is a very blatant history of legally enforced racism right, legally enforced racial separation that in Latin America doesn't exist. So at least here, and we see it right now, there are, you know, white people in power that are trying to eliminate the history, right, behind racism in this country and say, we can't teach, quote, unquote, critical race theory, because that's indoctrinating our children to think that America is a racist country, right? So it's not that much different from Latin America, because that same dynamic is what has already happened <laughs> there but it is different in the sense that in latin america there's nothing that you can point to and be like oh yeah this was the law like any time after slavery ended you can't point to any law and say yeah this was the law that separated us by race and so there is an even more effective means by which to deny the racism that persists in those countries however we can predict safely i believe that by 2042 or 45 or so, many white folks will have embraced those ideas about Latino whiteness for political reasons, to reinforce mm -hmm. what's left of white rule by causing large segments of the non-white population, Hispanics, mm -hmm. to deny their blackness or that race counts at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, we see that happening already. You know, the Ted Cruz's of the world and the Marco Rubio's of the world, they're already on board with that mission. And it's having its, its moment where, where folks are trying to do that. But at the same time, there is a push, I believe, mostly from indigenous and black Latin Americans and Latinos to say like race matters, racism exists in our countries, racism exists among Latinos in the US, and we have to acknowledge like our different positions. And so there's this kind of push and pull that's happening where I feel like there is this possibility that, that white Americans kind of open up 
the doors for white Latinos to come in and boost up the number of white folks in the U.S. But there's also a significant and growing number of Latinos who recognize racial oppression, recognize their position, their racial position in the U.S. and what it was in their countries of origin, and are trying to build community around these issues. So I think that it's definitely a push and pull. And even though white Americans might open up those doors and try and like bring white Latinos in, I feel like there is going to be, they're not going to be met with just open hands. Like it's going to, there's going to be some resistance to that. And I think that's because of the history of of Latinos being racialized as non-white and the fact that more Latinos are coming, you know, every day. And so it's not like um, it's not like the Italians and the Irish folk in the early 1900s who like they came and then immigration was cut off from Europe and their generations later were white. In the U.S. right now, you would have to cut off immigration altogether for that to even happen. And I don't really see that happening anytime soon. So what you see happening is just like a reinforcement of like, no, like even though you may appear white, you're not white <laughs> and, and you should be, you know, against racism too, because it might affect you. I have hope. I have a little bit of hope. <laughs> and what reinforces that realization is the behavior of the police who don't give out that pass. Who don't give out that pass and also the socioeconomic stratification, you know, that affects mostly Black and Latino people. It means that even if you see yourself as white, if you are a poor Puerto Rican, Dominican, whatever, and you live in the States, you are going to be highly policed. You are going to be, you know, targeted by the police and you're not safe, quote unquote, right? You don't have that protection that white Americans have. So I think there is a a class dynamic to it as well. What I have noticed usually is that Black Latinos or dark skin Latinos who identify as whatever, you know, race, that they are often met with a lot of, you know, questions about their racial, you know, self-identification when they move to the U.S. And what I want is You know, my goal ultimately is for Black people all over to unite and for there to be this, you know, political and radical coalitions of Black people across the country. That's my end goal. That's what I desire. But I think it's only possible if there's mutual understanding. And so I think that Black Latinos need to understand that there is a particular history of race in the U.S., that the one drop rule is, you know, the way of organizing race in the U.S. and has been for a long time. And that that is what people are referring to when they're asking them if they are black, right? It's like, do you have any black ancestry? To which the answer is always yes, (laughs) for the most part, particularly if it's Latinos that are from a place that was touched by slavery significantly. And I want black Americans to understand that Latinos are coming from regions where they were socialized to not talk about race, socialized to not talk about Blackness in particular, and socialized to not view discrimination as a systemic problem. And therefore, their entrance into the U.S. means a shift not only in terms of potentially their identification, but also in the context and their relationship to power in the U.S. So what I want is, is for there to be 
mutual understanding across the board, right? And I, and I think that that's what's missing is everyone wants the other side to kind of like understand them, but they don't understand the other side. And I just want there to be kind of a more education so that people understand that it's not that Latinos are denying their blackness or it's not that Americans are obsessed with race. It's that we just come from places that have different ways of organizing around racial issues. And so that mutual understanding could lead to a lot of learning, right? Unsettling this idea that like blackness is this thing, right? And kind of opening the door for understanding that blackness is multifaceted and could be understood in many different ways. And that yes, anti-blackness and racism are real in all of the Americas, not just the US, in all of the Americas, but that it manifests in different ways in different locations. That was Dr. Shanti Rosado speaking from Rutgers University. The South American nation of Colombia, where millions of black people have been driven from their homes in recent decades, is in the midst of a general strike against the U.S.-backed regime. President Ivan Duque's police and military have killed scores of protesters. We spoke with Charo Mina Rojas, a leader of the Black Communities Process Organization in Colombia which is manning blockades of the roads near the largely black city of Cali. Cali has become the center, one of the main centers of the strike because Cali has traditionally mobilized and and have been very strong holding points in the national strike. But also Cali was severely attacked by the police in the different spots where we were mobilizing. So many people have been killed in this city this year. Many people was killed last year also in, in 2019 during the strike. Cali is connected to areas where the government believes the terrorists, as they call guerrilla groups, and they call also terrorists, the indigenous, the Afro-descendant people, they call terrorists, the human rights defenders, everybody who is opposed to his regime is a terrorist. So many areas where the so-called for the government terrorist people, like us human rights defenders, indigenous Afro-descendant people, is close to Cali, like from the northern region, from the Pacific coast. So it's, it's identified as, as a focus, as the center. And since people mobilize from these areas, Buenaventura, from the Cauca to Cali to support the strike also, then and also main roads that connect the whole country from Bogota to the coast where the main port is, have to pass for, from Cali, then Cali become like a, the epicenter of the attacks from the government. You seem to be saying that the government is trying to pretend that these protests are terrorist-oriented rather than broad-based responses to this austerity on the part of the regime. It is right, yeah. For this government, the national strike and the mobilization, the demonstrations that we have been holding are organized by terrorist people. And this is a rhetoric that he uses, a language that he used to sustain this interest on calling a state of emergency and completely militarize the country and make better excuse the continuation of this brutal repression that we have been facing on these days. 
Now, it appears that many organizations representing various sectors of uh, Colombia are collaborating in these protests. Is this something new in Colombia? Does it present new opportunities to change the situation in that country? Well, it is not necessarily new, but it's a strong, a stronger, and definitely represent a opportunity. What we have seen this time is a, a very strong unification, very strong coalition between the many sectors and the many forces. You uh, have all the sectors of the unions at the center of this organization. You have health, you have uh, labor, you have education, you have young organizations, you have women organizations, you have indigenous and Afro-descendants, you have many, many sectors. Even today, when we were at one of the points of demonstration today, there were different religious sectors present. So this has become a strongest unification of people protesting and contesting this criminal government that want to impose by all means necessary, apparently, especially with blood, his neoliberal policies. And tell us about the demands that are being put forward in this strike. The demands have increased as, as sectors join the strike. So main demands have to do with economic policies. This strike started with a tax a policy that Duque wanted to impose that really undermines, that is really going to affect poor people in the so-called, in this country, middle class, which is basically people that doesn't have a income more than $250 per month, which is nothing. You know, rent costs 150 of those 250 So one is that there are different other policies on health, education, that the government wants to impose, that the demand is to put this down and sit down and really dialogue and negotiate with the labor sector and the whole unions and, and different sectors to come together to mechanisms and policies that really are going to respond to the very critical situation of everyday more and more impoverished people in this country. The other uh, part of um, the demands have to do with security and the respect of the right to live, basically. This government turning its back to these forces that have reorganized and rearmed led by paramilitary narco-traffic groups, are really massacring people in rural and urban communities. Our young people have been military target in these last three years where this government has been present. And you know the numbers of human rights defenders, Colombia, the whole global number of human rights defenders attack globally in the world, 50% are from Colombia. So we are demanding investigations. We are demanding that these paramilitary forces are dismantled and that the lives and the rights of human rights defenders, social leaders are really respected. Because now we are really threatened as military target, as enemies of war, and this situation in Colombia by this government is treated as war. 
This regime has now turned its guns on even larger segments of the population, including in Bogota, the capital, which has largely been out of the fray during this long, long, long period of civil war. Is the regime further isolating itself? I think so, and we think so. I think that more and more, I think the demonstrations on the streets for all these days, and this is going to continue, can show that more and more people is completely disgusted by this government, is tired of this repression, is tired of these lies, is tired of these policies, is tired of his very naked interest on supporting economic powers, uh, supporting the industry, supporting the banks over the rights of people. We have here 4,500,000 people that doesn't eat any food per day. And we have 500,000 small businesses that have broke down. We have hundreds of people, over 30% unemployment. This is more than 60% informal economy. So people start learning the reality of what this government really means. And he is really getting more and more isolated from the people in many countries. Unfortunately, there are international attention to this situation also expressing their concerns on what is going on with this government. And what role did COVID-19 play in the build-up to these demonstrations and protests? Well, COVID-19 only exacerbated a situation that was already very, very difficult for people. Before COVID, the poverty levels were also very high. People were suffering from no health assistance. It is like the main core of this country when Aventura had no water, no power. So the COVID just exacerbated the situation. When people have to be confined for several months last year, well, it's when we start getting more and more people losing their income, their ways of living, these small businesses getting broken down. And what we saw from a reform that Duque tried to impose in, in 2019 was that nothing that this tax reform Nothing of this tax reform brought any benefit to poor people. So during the COVID, people get in a worse situation, and now the banks getting $32 billion in support and revenue, the companies getting $19 billion in bonuses, and people getting 80,000 Colombian pesos per month in support and assistance from the government, 80,000 pesos is less than $30 per month. So you compare $19 billion toward $30 that people are receiving, and that explains why people live on the streets. So COVID only exacerbates and makes more visible a situation that was already in place. Are you satisfied with the collaboration you've gotten from the other elements that are protesting the regime? Well... You know, Black Affairs and the Woman from a Black Movement, we have to say that there is still a lot to gain in these processes to make visible the presence, the struggle, and also the blood that Black people is putting on these processes. Most of 
vast numbers of the people killed, disappeared, injured, and Cali, for instance, comes from black neighborhoods. So at the moment to be sitting at the table, we will have to see how much of our voice and our needs and our demands really can meet and reach those tables, but we are there side by side. Personally, I have to say that I'm not totally satisfied, but definitely there is a lot of support and more and more we are gaining the space and voice in this process. One thing that is very important to pay attention to is this struggle is going to continue because even if UK wants to finally sit down at the table and discuss what uh, you know we want from from this process, um, we are not completely sure that it's going to comply with everything that uh, that we discussed there. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that we are completely sure that these attacks and this dictatorship is going to escalate. We are very concerned of the people that have been arrested. We are very concerned of the hundreds of people that have been disappearing in different cities. We are concerned of the people that have been killed, you know, how this is going to reach justice. Um, So it is very important that the international community, even if Duque says that he will sit at the table and the talks start, pay very close attention and be very aware and supporting whatever we are putting out there from this process, because this is a criminal government. This is a government that sees our actions as war, and this is a policy of war, and we expect an escalation of these actions and this repression. So it's very important to pay attention to this. And if this government there to call a state of emergency, it's very, very important that the international community, that progressive people stand up and demand all their governments not to support Colombia in that decision. Because a state of emergency is his excuse to finally completely crash down any resistance, any action from people. We saw laws, we saw killings this time. This is going to be a complete massacre of people in urban and rural territories. And I have to tell you, a lot of these people is going to be black Afro-descendants. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.